Welcome to the latest edition of the Mind Gut Conversation podcast, a place to learn about the latest ideas from thought leaders in the area of health, food, the science of mind-body interactions, and the environment. Today, I have the great pleasure to speak to Dr. Drew Ramsey, a pioneer and thought leader in the area, the new field of nutritional psychiatry. Dr. Ramsey is a psychiatrist, author, and mental health advocate. He founded and leads the Brain Food Clinic, which offers consultation and integrative treatment regarding depression, anxiety, and emotional wellness concerns. He is an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and is active in clinical practice based in New York City and Jackson, Wyoming. Dr. Ramsey's work has been featured by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Today Show, BBC, and NPR, and he has given three TED Talks. His e-courses on nutritional psychiatry have educated thousands of people, and he's the co-author of the Antidepressant Food Scale. His award-winning books, Eat to Eat Depression and Anxiety, Eat Complete, Fifty Shades of Kale, and The Happiness Diet, Explore the Connections Between Mental Health and Nutrition. Welcome to the show, Drew. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Let me start out with a very general question. I mean, you're, you're a well-known psychiatrist, um, leader in, in your field. Um, I've written several books. So let me start out with this most general question. What is nutritional psychiatry? And second one, how did you get interested in this field? Well, hi, Amrin. It's, it's great to be with you again. I just always uh, get a kick out of our conversation. And hey, everybody who's listening, it's really a, a treat to be with you, and especially be with you speaking with Emron because he's just one of the people I've looked up to in the field and just think of as uh, you know, top in, in class when it comes to both being credentialed, but also helping us understand all this cool science. Um, nutritional psychiatry is a new branch of psychiatry. Really, when I started this, my, my first book, The Happiness Diet, came out in 2011, that phrase wasn't even used. I think the first time it was used in a book was my, my third book, Eat Complete, is I think the first nutritional psychiatry cookbook that really like declares itself that. And, and, and there's not an official definition to date. The definition that I've been using for the last couple of years is, is the use of nutrition to optimize brain health and in the treatment and prevention of mental health disorders. The reason the first part is that I, I think nutritional psychiatry is something all of us should be interested in. I, I know I'm biased as somebody who's interested in that field, but you know our brains, those 90 billion neurons, I mean, that's just, that that's the coolest collection of cells around in, in my opinion. And so we, we really haven't been thoughtful about how we eat in relationships taking care of our neurons, our brain cells, and and, and subsequently, how food impacts our mental health. And so nutritional psychiatry, I'm a, I'm a clinical psychiatrist, everybody. So I really, when I meet with a patient, I, I do the stuff that I've been trained to do as a psychiatrist and a physician and try to do that very well. And, and in some ways, simply add on to really wanting to understand my patients as eaters, how to, what they eat, how they shop, 
how they think about food, how they understand and, and what kind of is their intellectual framework for their food. Are there people they really believe in? Are there certain foods that are awesome and certain foods that are gross? What was dinner like around the kitchen table when they were young? Those kind of things, what do they like and what are their struggles? And, and, and to look at their mental health as it relates to those. So if somebody's carb craving, you know, how that relates to, let's say, a family history of depression or alcoholism, or uh, if somebody's really struggling with a lot of immunological and autoimmune issues, what's their experience of fermented foods been? Have they ever been part of it? Did it make it worse or better? You know, so just trying to make sure that I knew it, in part because it, you know, a lot of people, as they've adopted like plant-forward or plant-based diets, there's just both a lot of misinformation, but it's just important to know whether patients are eating things like B12 or not, or omega-3 fats, because those are really important nutrients for my work. And if they're not eating them by choice, okay, you know, but I feel it's responsible to make sure they're getting them some other place or, or trying to understand if there are compromises, ways that, you know, people can get more of these important brain nutrients uh, from sources that are acceptable to them. It's kind of surprising. I mean, like you mentioned this briefly, this link between, you know, food cravings or food addiction and um, um, psychiatric disorders. Um, and there's others like the eating disorders. Um, it's it's kind of surprising that this has not sort of come to the forefront in psychiatry earlier, uh, like because there's such a close link of significant, a significant spectrum of psychiatric diseases with that have to do with food intake. Um, why, well, why do you think that that it took so long? Well, Emmer, I think it relates to your question of like how I got here and how I got interested in it. One of the reasons I think psychiatry hasn't been focused on food is psychiatry's really struggled to be uh, taken in a significant way or in a legitimate way by a lot of medicine. You know, I mean, I, I even joke, you know, I'm a feelings doctor. And so as psychiatry has really fought to have mental health parity, have the notion that mental health conditions, brain health conditions are of utmost importance and of equal importance to our medical system as our physical conditions. Your heart health shouldn't matter more or less than your mental health. And, and that's not been the case, right? We spend billions of dollars researching heart health and diabetes, and, and we're getting there with mental health, but mental health is much more complex. Uh, mental health, there's a lot of unknowns. The brain is is still mysterious to us in many ways. I think that's one of the reasons that it was slow is, you know, the idea that one of the key tenets to mental health is that you should, you know, eat more salmon and, 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 and avocados and stop eating processed food. You know, I don't think that felt relevant enough or like it was going to grip medicine in the same way that, let's say, Prozac did. You know, uh, one could argue that Prozac and exercise are, are, are reasonably similar in terms of antidepressant response, but, you know, uh, one of them is recommended a lot in primary care, and, and I guess so is the other one, but there's a notion that, you know, one feels legitimate. It's like hmm. a medical intervention, whereas food often, actually the first chapter on food and psychiatry that I'm aware of, I, I got to write with Phil Muskin, who's a wonderful psychiatrist. He's a was head of the consult liaison service at New York Presbyterian Hospital for 30 years. I mean, just amazing clinician. It, the chapter is in the book of um, integrative and complementary psychiatry. And sort of this idea, and I think it kind of shows, right, that, that nutrition is like a integrative treatment, where I really think nutrition 
like movement, like sleep, these are foundational in our treatments for mental health disorders. If, if you don't have sleep hygiene, I'm just not going to have the same success. Uh, if, if we can't get that on board in treating your psychiatric illness, period. You know, it's just if you're eating lots of ultra processed foods and you're drinking a lot of alcohol and, you know, kind of living in some ways a standard American lifestyle these days, not a lot of sleep, a lot of electronic stimulation, not a lot of focus on human connection and intimacy and kindness, not a lot of sleep, a lot of aggression, right? Th- this is a lifestyle that eventually will take a serious toll on anyone's mental health. So do you think, um, I mean, we obviously, you know, m- many of us have, have, have this feeling that we're in the midst of a, of a major crisis that affects pretty much every aspect of society. You, you mentioned them, you know, from the opioid epidemic to the obesity epidemic to the chronic disease epidemic. I mean, you know, typically medicine has seen those or polit- politicians have seen those at, at unrelated aspects, but I mean, the way I look at it in a in a holistic way or in a systems way, I mean they're all part of a similar kind of phenomenon that we have lost touch with, uh, you know, traditional wisdom of how to live a good and happy life, and um, and I don't see much. I mean, there's clearly some movement, um, you know, as as always in Southern California, people want to reinvent, you know, life and come up with new ideas. And there's a lot of positive things amongst young people, but I think overall, um, I just don't see enough positive signs that we are reversing this current trend. I think it's still a downward, uh, a downward spiral, you know, and to have something come up like, um, you know, what they call integrative uh, psychiatry or holistic psychiatry, incorporating lifestyle factors. Some of our colleagues in functional medicine have been doing that. I mean, I'm always intrigued. I I used to talk negatively about, you know, these are just docs who want to sell supplements, but their, their philosophy is actually quite impressive because they are following that, you know, that principle Disease is not just like the, the breakdown of one little thing. It's it's connected to multiple. So I don't know how you. I'm I'm, I'm sure you you must see this in a in a similar way. Yeah, I'm a psychiatrist, so I've had to adopt a uh, mindset and attitude of perpetual optimism in the face of uh, mental chaos. Uh, as as you sit with people as their brains aren't working or their minds are in such pain or they don't want to be alive or they don't have the same kind of grasp as uh, of reality that maybe they used to. Uh, and so I, I uh, well, I, I definitely am concerned. I also think that we're not in a downward spiral. We might still be swinging there might still be a response nationally uh, uh, to um, a movement towards a more kind of polarized system, but eventually I think that will stop and will swing back. I'm not sure, nobody can be, but there's a sense that if we're going to be a country um, that we have to decide what's most important is us sticking together. And, and right now it feels that there's been a, a cultural climate uh, that's really based in winning with the notion that if some Americans win and other ones don't, somehow that's going to work. And whether it's the left or the right, it's never going to work until we decide that you know we're, we want to mm-hmm. be a country together. 
Um, I agree there's a lot of hopefulness. I mean, I'm very excited by the mix of ideas that I think cause a lot of people concern recently, whether it's around the gender or sexuality or nutrition. There's been a very sort of steep rate of innovation and challenging of traditional ideas. That's always going to cause a lot of consternation. I mean, um, I think all of us, as we age, there's a notion as things are done differently, it's a little threatening because the way that we did it worked okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, yeah. um, uh, but I, I do remain um, hopeful. I remain hopeful that there are simple truths, simple truths that when people hang out together, sing together, uh, help one another, are kind to one another, sleep better, eat better, love better, that that generally good things happen. And I think that those are truths that all people just fundamentally know. Um, but it's a concerning time and it's a concerning time for mental health. I think it's where, you know, eat to pre depression and anxiety. Uh, I signed the contract for this book like uh, a few weeks before the pandemic hit. And, and so in, in a lot of ways, it was really inspiring thinking that uh, people were going to maybe find this book at a time where they were struggling with depression and anxiety for some people in a way they hadn't before. And that might be a resource you know, it was also a very challenging thing in the middle of the pandemic to be creative and work on a book. Um, but but the idea is that food and a lifestyle of mental fitness, which I think one of the ways, as you mentioned, functional medicine, and I'd also put the coaching movement in there. Mm -hmm. You know, those those two movements have really asked medicine to take a broader approach that that we can't just throw medicines at things. I also think conventional medicine is kind of like unduly, uh, I don't know, it kind of reminds me when lots of people are allowed to try lots of things in mental health and really, really cause a train wreck. And the folks who end up sitting with it and trying to fix it usually are psychiatrists. And and there's not a lot of responsibility often uh, for that. Um, but that's when we get kind of, I think, corralled into like where this very conventional field that only has meds, uh, which I don't think isn't really fair or accurate. Um, but functional medicine and coaching really ask us to take a more active stance than people have taken traditionally. Part of that is also a, a way or a stance in mental health that's very different than medicine. Now, mental health, we really, especially in psychotherapy, if you're not interested in doing the work, I'm going to be curious about that, but I'm not really going to try and do therapy with you. Mm -hmm. it's not, you're not in a mindset for it or ready for it, and it's a waste of everybody's time. Mm -hmm. that, that's not how general medicine works, right? You know, we, we want you to be doing things even if you don't want to. Um, and so there's a kind of buy-in when it comes to taking care of your mental health. If you just want to come and talk, yeah, that'll help in a lot of ways, but there has to be a real buy-in that understanding the self, using words to describe our interior world, making effort to communicate clearly and connect with others, making effort to live, uh, as one of my patients says, according to a set of values that are meaningful. Uh, you know, that that's all really at the at the center of, of mental health and, and at the center of this movement we're hoping to push along around mental fitness that you can't just sit around thinking like oh good I, I don't have depression i'm feeling okay you really need to be focused on how you can build a strong set of resources to one grow your mental health everybody listening there's more mm -hmm. i don't know what it is for you i know what it is for me i don't know but but you do 
Right? There, there's more. I don't know if it's loving deeper. I don't know if it's a bigger adventure. I don't know if it's more focus and working harder or less. Uh, but but there's more to our mental health. There's an evolution in our capacity. Right now, the only way we think about a mental health is via the lens of mental illness. And mental fitness really asks us to think about ourselves in perpetual development, in evolution, and to understand that our daily actions play a great deal in our mental health and in our lives. And, and so by engaging with ourselves and others in more specific ways, uh, we take good care of our mental health. And I think by extension, take good care of our communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know this is uh, this is really a good insight. I mean, how many how many of your colleagues share this this view in in in, in psychiatry? So, you know, in in terms of nutritional psychiatrists, I mean, the people that I know that have sort of percolated to the surface, and for a non psychiatrist to see that, I I think I could count on uh, you know on on on, on the five fingers. Um, it's like but me, Luminadu, Chris Palmer. Um, Georgia Eatis, uh, doctor, there's a oh, psychiatrist at Stanford who has started a metabolic psychiatry lab whose name I am spacing on because I don't know her very well. Uh, there's Emily Deans, who is an early, I think she builds her evolutionary psychiatrist. Um, so, so, and I think that is uh, the, the bulk of us. We've trained oh, I'm going to say maybe four to 500 mental health professionals in nutritional psychiatry via our courses. And that's been really wonderful to see uh, the engagement and, 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 and the excitement. Mm. Um, we have a clinician group that meets and it's really fun to you know, meet with people from around the country and, and sometimes around the world who are thinking about these ideas in a variety of settings, whether it's a school cafeteria or a counseling center um, or a therapeutic farm. We have all kinds of uh, uh, folks who, who um, have expressed interest in, in, in gotten some education. So yeah, there aren't a lot of us, but I think it's growing. I also think you know, to declare yourself a nutritional psychiatrist is maybe not what most people are interested in in terms of their work with patients. Um, uh, you know, I would say mostly I'm a psychiatrist and psychotherapist. Um, that, that said, I think for anybody working in the clinical mental health space, if you're running an evidence-based practice or evidence-based treatment and you're not, you know, you, you, you've got to be talking about food. I mean, if you're running evidence-based treatment and you're prescribing medications, you should already be talking about food, taking a patient's weight, you know, ask, uh, making sure you have a full set of labs. Mm -hmm. right? there's, a, there's a way that I think sometimes people forget psychiatrists or physicians. And so there's this whole way that, you know, um, you ask, what do my colleagues think? I think my, my colleagues in psychiatry have always known and felt that nutrition, exercise, and sleep are absolutely foundational to mental health. I think because if you look at what psychiatry has been tasked with recently, a growing suicide epidemic that does not, it's a local, it does not show any signs of slowing, uh, an opioid use disorder epidemic, I think we're up to basically close to 100,000 lives a year now dying from overdose, uh, the depression epidemic, we're seeing levels of depression and anxiety in prior to the pandemic, and prior to this epidemic of mental health, we already had a system that didn't work very well mm -hmm. mental health wise. 
A lot of people have no idea how to access a mental health clinician. A lot of patients I meet with, even if they have some knowledge of mental health, they know maybe they're depressed. I've met a lot of people who didn't tell anybody until after something really horrible happened. So, I, you know, it's, again, I, I think this idea of like, one of the reasons we don't hear about food is that the psychiatry, you know, it's like the mental health house is on fire. And so nobody's like stopping to be like, do you like avocado toast? Avocado toast is really good. Um, that said, I think part of putting out the fire is psychiatry getting into a very preventative stance. You should not be meeting me when you're rock bottom. You should be meeting me ideally when you're in early adulthood or teen and talking about mental health and what it is and how to take care of yourself. You should be getting an education about these foods where, you know, nothing on the cover of this book should be surprising to anybody who's gone through our educational system, ideally, that we know what foods feed the brain, right? Let's not focus on the controversy. Are you a vegetarian or not? Do you eat meat or not? That's like so down the list of what people should worry about for health. It's a joke. What people should worry about is the fact that nobody in America knows where to find folate or zinc or B12. And a lot mm. of doctors don't have any idea what foods contain those nutrients. Mm. Those are like some of the most new, important nutrients for mental health and health. How do we have a system by which neither our patients nor our providers have any idea about nutrition? And we've all been saying this for the same years. Every, everybody's been quoting the same damn statistic forever. Doctors get about 26 hours of medical uh, nutrition education during their four years, right? It's like that, that study came out, I think it was the 80s and then was redone years ago. It's like, and I don't think that's the answer, teaching doctors a lot more nutrition, but at some, making sure it's basic, making sure we know how to partner with dietitians, nutritionists, and coaches more effectively, making sure we take our role as physicians seriously to let patients know we think these are really important things, mm. being part of their health. Um, I mean, that's sort of, like you mentioned a few of these, like, you know, zinc and folate and vitamin B12 and uh, uh, omega-3, long-chain fatty acids. Um, so a lot of people don't know which food they would be in, but they pop, you know, a handful of, of supplements every morning and for a lot of physicians, definitely functional medicine practitioners would say, I have some excellent mix of supplements to give you to, to take care of your brain. So I imagine from, um, uh, you know, from, from talking to you and knowing you, that you would not give that advice. I mean, you would definitely recommend. No. And I think most good functional medicine doctors who are adhering to principles and not trying to ignore the bias that exists when you profit from laboratory tests and supplements. The people who really care about functional medicine, they're gonna do food first. You know, I, I know Mark Hyman a bit, I consider him a friend and Mark's a food first guy. He'd be the first person, uh, I would say, to encourage that. Um, I've never been very interested in supplements because I've never really seen data that they ever help anyone. And I've been consistent in that message, and I'm going to change it as soon as there are powerful studies showing that something actually helps. It's one of the critiques of functional medicine. Functional medicine has no data that it actually helps. Mm -hmm. and, and that gets ignored, but you know, when you're asking people to spend their money on tests or supplements... There should be some evidence. I think the challenge in that MRN is like, there's a lot of things we don't have evidence for. And it's really hard to get good, strong evidence, especially around mental health. So 
but but I would say that there is um, uh, a lot of room for improvement in people's attitudes. The reason we like supplements uh, is because of how our minds work, that we don't want to be flooded with the anxiety of what we don't know, or maybe that we didn't get enough of. And so we pretend that taking a pill form of it will help us. Mm. Certainly you'll get a normal level of whatever, but you're not going to get it in the matrix. It's always come in. You know, you're not going to get it with the phytonutrients often that are in their freshest form. Uh, you're not going to get the various versions. Right? There are eight forms of vitamin E in nature. The tocotrienols, we don't even really know what they do, but they're fascinating. Mm -hmm. You don't get those in the supplements. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's where I kind of, um, I would say I see my role in the movement, Emeryn, that, that I really feel that my job is to sing loudly and proudly about food and to let people know that if they're turning to supplements early in their health journey, that they've really missed the boat in a certain way. It doesn't have to be either or, and for folks who are listening, who take supplements and they've helped, I think it's wonderful. You're feeling better. Mm -hmm. I also think placebo is super powerful. And I meet a lot of patients who are spending a lot of money on supplements and they tell me that food's expensive. And that's where I, I guess I get concerned. In, in your opinion, does the evidence support um, a benefit from various supplements, including, and the emphasis is really on that question, so-called psychobiotics for psychiatric disorders? Yeah, right now as a clinical intervention, there isn't a lot lot of evidence. The, there's one study of probiotics, uh, so psychobiotics uh, 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 being used in the uh, augmentation of treatment of acute mania. So uh, a study looked at individuals who were hospitalized, individuals with bipolar disorder, hospitalized for mania, who got treatment as usual. Uh, versus treatment as usual, plus a probiotic. As a study in Johns Hopkins had a very powerful protective response for, for the patients who got the intervention who had, prior to the study, a high inflammatory index. There was a 90% reduction in the hospitalization rate over six months. So I think there are a few studies like that that really show the power. There are also a, a really not a very clear data signal that probiotics... Um, help and depression. Uh, there's some data really just came out, I think last week, that probiotics um, can influence BDNF expression, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which we think of as, as one of these uh, very influential molecules in terms of keeping the brain healthy and making new connections. Um, you know, you can find intermittent studies uh, here and there, or, or various studies, I would say, for depression Really, the, the the only supplement with robust data would be St. John's Wort. There are 30-plus randomized trials and uh, Cochrane meta-analysis, you know, suggesting that St. John's Wort can be as powerful as traditional antidepressants. Yeah, depression is also a really hard thing to treat. People have a, a bias. There's an implicit bias towards natural things. If I give somebody a compound, I say it's a natural treatment for depression. They're much more likely to take it, respond, uh, uh, want to stay on it uh, than if it's a pharmaceutical. Um, about over 50% of patients with uh, mental health disorders try complementary alternative medicine like supplements and you know various herbs and things. 
There are some, uh, I would say lavender uh, and even lavender aromatherapy, surprisingly, has has some data for helping with uh, anxiety um, and insomnia. There's a little bit of data that Kava Kava, uh, although there's some concerns about formulation, could be helpful with anxiety. Um, but it's a little bit, you know, like CBD. People are surprised that there's no CBD data at all when it comes to mental health. There's no data that CBD is helpful for insomnia. In fact, 25% of patients who get CBD in the largest trial that was, or the largest kind of chart review that's ever been published had worsening of their insomnia. Um, you know, at the same time that the number one reason people go for CBD is anxiety and insomnia. So not, I'm not trying to say it doesn't work, or it does work, it's more that like the way that we make decisions about your health as physicians is based on evidence because everybody can have an opinion. Everybody can have a positive or a negative experience, but when people's health is in your hands, you wanna try and use the evidence that exists. When there's not evidence, and I think we often look at mechanistic stuff, and I think that's where you kind of get in trouble, right? The idea that, I don't know, that if you have an MTHFR mutation and you take L-methylfolate, it's gonna be helpful for your depression. Nope, it's not according to the data, or that you need to measure an MTHFR level to get that response. Nope, you just have to measure a homocysteine. Now, does that mean MTHFR isn't interesting? No, it's super interesting. It just means it's one of those mechanistic things that often gets used and manipulated to distract people from evidence-based treatments. Right? Not that Deplin or L-methylfolate, if you've taken it, it's helpful for you. Again, that's great. It's just that the evidence to recommend that is pretty non-existent for patients with depression right now. And it has been for a while. So but the reason we like that just MDHFR is this uh, molecule that 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 helps us um, in the processing of, of um, well, it requires a number of B vitamins, but sort of there's a notion of uh, um, how mental health kind of can't function as well molecularly if you have a bad MTHFR mutation. The idea is that you have to methylate folate to transport it into the brain. And if you have a kind of quote unquote bad version of that enzyme, you don't get as much folate into the brain. So you have a harder time with your mental health and less depression. Again, it sounds great. Bypass that bad gene with L-methylfolate supplement. All's good. But when you're a clinician and you start sending people for expensive genetic tests and they come back and you're both kind of excited you keep giving people on methylfolate and it doesn't work, you know, you, you feel you feel like a chump, to be honest. You feel like you've wasted people's time and money. Uh, and you look through and realize there just wasn't a lot of evidence for that to begin with. So Yeah, I mean, what you're addressing is I, I've often thought about this, you know, because I also, you know, feel pretty strong. I mean, having been a scientist all my career and, uh, you know, made this the ultimate um, um you know, measure to recommend something. But I think if you look at the, the landscape today, um, there's a lot of areas that, or, or a lot of treatments, both in psychiatry, but also in, in medicine and gastroenterology that are not supported by sufficient evidence that, that you know, I would require, like if I did a placebo-controlled study for a new medication, you know, a lot of those have failed despite millions of dollars of investments. And we, we, we've not applied, you know, these kind of rigorous evaluations for so many compounds. At the same time, there's enough 
practitioners out out there um and i'm not necessarily critical because in their hands giving these compounds with the right ritual and um you know as you mentioned earlier i mean there is a big placebo response we shouldn't underestimate you know how powerful that is and um so the question is if if treatments are used um including you know phytochemicals or or nutrition and there's not the hard evidence that we would require for a new medication for the fda approval but it works for a lot of patients in the hands of a superb clinician you know should we criticize that or should we say that that practitioner is basically knows the art of healing is a healer is not necessarily a traditional you know medical evidence-based person i i think it's hard in mental health just because i think mental health patients get taken advantage of more not that mental health patients aren't incredibly intelligent and creative. I would say often more intelligent and creative than the rest of the population, but that because the illnesses affect uh, mood, anxiety, um, insight, uh, and because mental health is a little mysterious and people often have very bad experiences. I can talk about evidence-based protocols for depression. By the way, 13% of Americans have their depression treated with an evidence-based protocol, right? One of the reasons we have a medical uh, mental health crisis is 87% of patients don't actually mm. get treatment for depression that is in any way an evidence-based protocol. So, you know, that's one of the challenges. We have treatments that work that aren't used. The other is that it's not accessible, right? Anybody who's listening right now who doesn't like psychiatrists or mental health professionals or the medical system, can go down to uh, you know any pharmacy in America and get St. John's Wort or rhodiola mm. or kava kava, um, you know, or uh, lavender. Those don't have super robust data, but they can access them and take them without ever going through me. Mm. Now the problem with that, Emran, is that that method misses a lot. It misses a medical screening for depression. It often misses a good mental health evaluation. Mm -hmm. uh, very common. I will see patients who've been misdiagnosed and then grossly mistreated. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, there's also the hammer nail problem with that. If you're a great healer and there are a certain set of things that work with you, as people with mental health problems come to you, they're a nail in your hammer. And, and so the kind of problems fit into the box of the tools you have. Um, I think some people will say overall, that's just a criticism of psychiatry and mental, mental health diagnostic systems. But I, I do think because mental health professionals are the ones who live with the consequences of the choices that we make with patients. Uh, you have a great respect for SSRIs when you give them to hundreds and thousands of people. You see them save lives and you see them not work and you see them make people worse. Mm -hmm. And all of those things are true about them. Uh, so, you know, I, I guess where the, the, the your question, you know, uh, what I like about anyone getting involved with any healer in a conversation about their mental health, whether it's herbs or supplements or nutrition, I like it that that individual is talking with someone about their mental health. 
And that's the first step. A lot of times when patients come to see me, I'm billed maybe as a little bit of an integrative guy. And they'll say, I don't want to take medicine. Like, okay, this happened to me. I think young guy going back to college. I think he looks pretty depressed. Not all the way. I just think he might be helped. And, and it felt responsible to say like, hey, what do you think about this stuff? I never even talked to you about this, but here are some of the symptoms. Some people might want to put you on medicine. What do you think? Really sort of horrified of the idea. Not his style. Doesn't want to do that. But there's also a young man who told me how much he loves sauteing greens, eating sauteed greens when he's out at like a steak, steak restaurant. Right? So we started talking about greens and now he's committed to start sauteing greens uh, while he's at school. You know, whether he needs medicine or not is something that he and I will come to understand over the next while. But we definitely know that he needs greens, and, and we definitely know he needs an ongoing conversation about his mental health, social challenges, alcohol, all the stuff that a lot of times young men are struggling with in college. And so I, I think I want to be clear. What I like is people talking about their mental health. I like that best coming from really qualified clinicians who have extensive training in mental health specifically, just because I think that um, gives people a framework to do the most good. Mm-hmm. Um, coming back to, you know, the specifics of nutritional psychiatry and the role of nutrition. So like, like all chronic diseases, um, you know, they're multi, like the, the pathophysiology is multifactorial. Um, and some of the components, um, I mean, it's the same, like about, you know, like all the gut disorders, uh, some of the components contribute 5% of the variants, others 10 Others less than five percent. The same with the genes, you know, some genes. Um, so, what I mean, what role do you see quantitatively? I mean, you have to estimate it. Obviously, does diet play in besides the genes and the epigenetics and the lifestyle and uh, you know the experience of traumatic life events? What what role do you think diet plays or causes uh, is, is is responsible for the variance of the the clinical? Yeah, I, you know, I think the percentage on that number is going to vary on the individual. You know, I, I would say for some people, it's going to be 100% that you're eating horrible, they're eating horribly, they're eating low uh, nutrient density food, they've gained weight, they have prediabetes, they're overweight with visceral adiposity, adiposity, their blood pressure is up. And then one day they decide to really change how they eat. They start walking every day. They lose 50 pounds, They, or maybe not that number. Maybe they don't even lose that much weight. They just begin to really take control of their health, eat non-inflammatory foods, move their body, and sleep well. well that, that's an example where the food is, a, is a, you know, both mm-hmm. driving the illness and then, and then curing it. Um, I think for patients who are clearly having um, depression as part of a medical illness or an inflammatory response, you know, again, it's going to be quite... I would say variable. And some of those patients really with a careful, uh, thoughtful uh, work, let's say an elimination diet might, might find some things that really are a root cause. You know, I don't think that's you know, the pro- one of the problems with the promise of functional medicine to find root causes is that the root cause of a lot of mental illness is not known. What is the root cause of schizophrenia? What is the root cause of attention deficit disorder? What is the root cause of clinical depression? We have a lot of different things that can cause and contribute to those disorders, but usually it's not one kind of silver bullet. Oh, gosh, you were eating shrimp. We didn't know that you had a bad food reaction. Now we do. You stopped it. Your mental health's amazing. 
Um, so uh, I also think it's what the food chain represents. Emerin, right? Where when you think about part of the way that I use nutrition, it's to modal, mobilize affective chain or a behavioral change that if you're eating poorly and, and you begin to eat a little bit better, those are choices that we can celebrate. Those are ways that people who are very uh, much struggling with their mental health can feel empowered. You know, those are um, things to do when people get early in recovery. There's a lot of boredom when you're not drinking or using. So food becomes a great way. There's shopping, there's going to the farmer's market, there's cleaning vegetables, there's chopping, there's cooking, there's eating, there's cleaning, right? There's a lot to do that helps you if you're really craving a substance and you're trying to, to uh, reduce your use. So there, there's also all the data on what happens to our mental health when we eat with others, share meals mm -hmm. with others, when we have food insecurity. The risk of depression goes up by 10 times in the elderly when they have food insecurity. Mm -hmm. And so there are all these, you know, sort of ways in terms of the percentage, right? All these ways that I think food gets involved that, you know, for me, it only takes a couple of like really nice meals with family and friends for my mental health to just feel so much better or to throw a really nice dinner party where everybody loves it and I pull it off and, absolutely, absolutely. you know, and, and the conversation is flowing and I look out and see my friends. And, I mean, that's, that's just one of, for, for me, like the kind of peak experience that really I see as an indicator that I'm living a life according to my values, right? That I'm helping generate and create a lot of good nourishment and good feelings and good connections. And this has been noticed in the early papers about the traditional Mediterranean diet, that it's the lifestyle. Yeah. And, you know, we've experienced this last couple of years when we, when we went to Italy and, you know, even though I've been there so many times, I'm, I I was still amazed to see in the evening, you know, how these piazzas fill up with with people, with young people, eating together, walking together up and down the street. Uh, you don't, you know, like we have beautiful outdoor places here now in California. The pandemic has kind of increased that that many restaurants have these outdoor extensions, but you know, at at ten o'clock, there's nobody outside anymore. You know, there's there's, there's no there's no walking around on the sidewalks. It's a it's a very different um, and this experience in Italy, I have to say, I mean, with friends sitting in these in these social settings and being surrounded by people that are all engaged in conversations, it it makes you feel better. Like every time we, we, we came back and said, wow, this this was really it charged up our, our, our batteries. And it was not just as the food. I mean, the food could have been just pasta, you know, a simple I mean, Sometimes like, it is just a simple pasta, you know. Uh, exactly. Um, well, I also wonder if part of what you're noting is a way that um, uh, some of the, our traditional American values um, cause us a bit of a mental health problem, that we're into rugged individualism in a certain way mm -hmm. um, and into a some ways kind of capitalistic and competitive and efficient society or interested in some of those things and and you know the the uh, mental health isn't super efficient both our experience of it and our our um, intervening and helping you know psychotherapy takes a long time medications take a while understanding uh behavioral change and implementing it takes a little while so 
uh, you know, I think it's part of what you're noting are aspects of our culture that we need to address if we're going to have mental health. Yeah, so we have addressed, I mean, I totally agree with your assessment of that. I mean, what we have addressed um, were several indirect factors by which diet or paying attention or being mindful of, you know, what you eat and where you eat it and with whom you eat it. Um, so they're not necessarily direct biological effects of molecules that are in the food that you eat. So there seem to be really two aspects, at least two aspects, major aspects of why nutrition may have a benefit on, on your mental health. One is there are, there are chemicals, phytochemicals and other chemicals and trace minerals, amino acids in the food that have a direct effect on your brain. But there's also a lot of these indirect behavioral effects that taking charge, being in control, feeling like you are taking charge of your health now, not not the doctor giving you a pill, you know. Um, so that's kind of an interesting aspect of the whole nutritional psychiatry field. That yeah, there's sort of three or four what I call non-nutritive uh, effects. There's the maybe it's phytonutrients, maybe it's more nutrients, the sort of insufficiency, dietary insufficiency. People don't eat a lot of vitamin E or a lot of zinc. Americans don't really eat any long-chain omega-3 fats, those kind of things. Maybe it's that people you know, are eating more food and, and more nutrients that promote neuroplasticity or decrease inflammation or promote a healthier microbiome. So all those biological factors that at play for sure. But I also think there's like a, one of them I call the food SIBO effect, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is you know simply by hearing from an authority or someone you trust, uh, even a guru that like this is, these are a set of rules. Uh, I think the whole 30 phenomenon really showed that. They asked people to commit for 30 days of basically sensible advice. Like don't eat garbage, eat real food. Mm -hmm. A little more complicated than that, but people felt amazing after 30 days. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's, um, yeah, I, I think there's, there's these, uh, Sort of, I wouldn't say that's a food SIBO effect, but I think there there's, there are changes that people make in their diet where they feel better quite quickly. That is about adhering to a set of rules, and then as you mentioned, empowerment, connection. You know, we know the worst thing for our mental health is isolation, yeah. and few things connect us like food. You know, when when are, almost always are we kind of around or thinking about other people or with other people, engaging with them, usually it's meal time. So. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, I, I think we're sort of coming towards the end. There, there was there was one question, uh, you know, you you briefly mentioned CBD, and um, you know, I mean, obviously different effects, not, not as much evidence supporting it, uh, potential therapeutic benefits, but uh, you know, cannabinoids, so centrally acting plant derived products, so the psychedelics and the cannabinoids, sort of all of a sudden rising to the top of the excitement of interest in, in amongst young psychiatrists and, you know, some amazing studies are coming out, the early studies. Um, so I almost look at this as, you know, mushrooms are healthy from a, from a non-psychedelic standpoint. I mean, there's a lot, of, you know, phytochemicals in mushrooms that, that is, is, is amazing that that kind of organism can produce those. But they have this additional now, this psychotropic, the psychotropic and neuroplastic effects. What is your opinion on that in your own practice and in your experience? We have a, a wonderful leader in the psychedelic movement on, as part of our group, Xiaojie Hu. She's part of the NYU psychedelic research team under Stephen Ross. And so she's really been kind of leading our 
uh, understanding of that. You know, currently as clinicians, the only psychedelic that is remotely accessible to us um, is ketamine, which has been around for a long time. A lot of controversy about its use. There are now 513 ketamine clinics. Leaders in the field estimate that fewer than 5% of those are actually using ketamine anywhere close to appropriately. Mm. There are also a lot of ways that ketamine gets used. There's an IV infusion where there's no talking about the content. There's ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, which is highly variable in terms of clinician training and experience. Uh, you know, so there's, uh, in, in terms of rapid neuroplasticity, one of the comments that caused me pause recently was an expert in the field noting that, why do you think that's good? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, why is rapid brain growth such a great thing? What if you're rapidly making a bunch of brain connections that aren't particularly helpful for you? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't mean to sound anti-psychedelics. I think it's really, really cool. I think it's awesome that we're opening our minds to these compounds that have been used. You know, the hippies have been using cannabis and psilocybin for 50 years to explore to create more love and kindness, to self-medicate depression and anxiety. Uh, I think part of me being a physician who's kind of grown up and, and, and been practicing in an era where the way that medicine and the legal system has approached these substances have essentially meant that our patients haven't had any access and there's been zero research, uh, th that really pisses me off. Mm. I mean, I think that really shows how science really still does not lead the conversation when it comes to things like safety, when it comes to, you know, I'd say the messaging that uh, gets out there. I also think that there's the same concern that you have with big pharma that I have with big psychedelic. You know, essentially right now, a lot of the movement looks like a lot of white venture capital money trying to profit off of analogs mm. of molecules that have been sacred to a lot of cultures for a long time. So I, I don't mean to generalize. I mean, I'm not an expert in the psychedelic movement. I just think that one of the things that's cool in some ways is that's a really big part of the movement. There's a big talk about, and a lot of talk about diversity, equity, inclusion in the psychedelic movement. There's a lot of talk about where these compounds have come from. I think just like the food movement, there's a lot of pollen hype. You know, yeah. a lot of people have read Michael Ballin's books and that led them to think about food differently. That's incredible. Mm. A lot of people still don't eat well at all, you know, just, and so a lot of people have read about psychedelics via him. I think it's wonderful how it opens up folks' minds to, you know, the possibilities of uh, our mental health and the limitations of how we think about it. Uh, you know, at the same time, again, right now, it's not really an accessible treatment. It will be in the next two years. And we do not have a lot of vocalization of it going wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of, you know, we hear a lot, understandably, from the movement of how safe it is. But the challenge is without an appropriate notion, right? There's a way that it's kind of, it's good for everything. Um, that might be, in some ways, I guess, when it works, true, but but it's good for things that aren't necessarily medical, right? The medical system doesn't have a way. It's not like you're kind of being like, you know, it sounds to me like you got a spiritual deficit going on right now. When I hear about your story, Emeran, I don't hear a lot of spirituality. I don't hear a lot about thinking about your place in the universe, not a lot of existential questions. 
you know, I, I think probably as a first step treating your depression, you should have a psilocybin experience to really open up mm. yourself spiritually. Mm. I can imagine that as a clinician probably being the right thing for some patients. Mm -hmm. It's just that, you know, how as a clinician, I would ever do that right now, especially, you know, everybody's excited about the psilocybin data. You're excited because Lexapro is as powerful as psilocybin. Cause that's what the last study said. Mm -hmm. Didn't say, didn't say it was superior because last thing I heard, everybody's really disappointed in the SSRIs and how horrible they are. So what I'm still kind of confused about, even though I think this stuff's awesome, is, you know, there's such a kind of bias right now that that it's almost like you can't talk about it. Mm -hmm. For me, not to be like over the moon about CBD and psychedelics and to be cautionary, you know, it it doesn't feel great, to be honest. It feels like you're not one of the cool kids. You're not, you know, <laughs> you're not doing the latest. And you know, so our team is really trying to explore this responsibly. I've had some ketamine-assisted psychotherapy training. I, you know, I'm curious about it. At the same time, the promise of that work, you're going to get in deeper. I mean, that's how I've always judged myself as a therapist and psychiatrist. That's my worth. Yeah. Can I get you to go in deeper and understand yourself in different ways than you have before? And for 20 years of my career, I haven't needed ketamine to do that. So, that, that, you know, I'm really looking forward to learning more about it. I just think that there's a, there's a way that people love to hate on mental health care today and love to have an idealized fantasy of mental health care tomorrow. And I, I, I like that too. I do that too. I just think we need to, we, we need to be aware of how complex it is. There's not a silver bullet. If you, know? if you if you had a crystal ball and look in the future 20 years from now, so there are these two movements. On the one side, it's nutritional psychiatry, which is novel. On the other hand, there's the psychedelic enhanced uh, you know, psychiatry. What do you think psychiatry will be in 20 years from now? Will it be totally changed or will will you know will these things come and go or I think psychiatry will be completely changed in 20 years. I think that we'll have a much better sense of the um, epigenetics of a number of illnesses that we don't currently understand. I think that we will have not only the current psychedelics in 20 years, we'll have a number of analogs. I think one of the questions that will emerge in field, the field is about the nature of human consciousness and what happens. Right now, we're all fine with mushrooms because they're natural. What if I create a compound ember that changes your personality a little bit? I think you'll have the same concerns you have now that pharmaceutical companies are are somehow shifting human consciousness. It's sort of to me what I'm kind of fascinated by is like that's exactly what people are excited about right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and, and so those are the questions I think going to be really you know let's say somebody these trials are in right but what people are really trying to do is to make a version of psilocybin that is better tolerated and shorter. Mm -hmm. So you could come to my office in 45 minutes, you have a profound psychedelic experience. You talk a little bit about it. You walk out and go to work. You come back the next day, we talk more about it and your depression is cured. Mm -hmm. I, I, I wonder. I also wonder about the nature of, you know, psychotherapy with these things. You know, people are pretty clear. The mushrooms aren't what does it. What does it is the integration of the of the psychedelic experience. Absolutely. And so what a lot of people, you know, I've had lots and lots of patients taking all kinds of drugs for my entire career. 
it's not like they come back from the music festival and they're like, I'm, it's all better. They come back and they're like, I, I feel better. I feel more buoyant. I feel a little glow. Yeah. But it's so, um, but where the field will be, or at least where I hope that we're pushing it towards clinically, better biomarkers, better sense of genetic and epigenetic risk, uh, uh, a structure and framework for lifestyle interventions like nutrition and exercise that um, really show that they are the best at motivating behavioral change. Um, I think we'll have a number of compounds, and I still think we'll have some of the medicines we're still using. You know, people can, you know, I mean, most recently the molecular psychiatry article saying like, you know, serotonin's like low serotonin's not the cause of depression. It's like, I'm sorry, if you thought low serotonin was the cause of depression, you've not been paying attention for the last 25 years. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's like I was shocked that people got excited. And people are posting on Instagram, like, like, are you kidding me? Like serotonin, that's the doorbell. And I like yeah. to ring it to get inside the cell to cause more BDNF expression, let's say, unless, you know, people forget, just didn't learn. Prozac is a massive anti-inflammatory. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I just think that is, I guess I'm in, my short answer is, I think we're going to be radically transformed. I think we'll be using anti-inflammatories, psychedelics, inflammatory biomarkers, and um utilizing epigenetics i think we'll be using tspo scans to to look at inflammation in the um brain and probably a little more imaging mm-hmm. and i still think we'll be doing what we've always done i think we'll mm-hmm. still always be helping people with the human condition that life is complicated that we're emotionally complicated uh i think that you know i don't think that part's going to change a lot but well, so let's let's call it a day with this uh, wonderful summary and impression. I, I I think I'm totally on 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 your wavelength. Um, it's 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 nice to see other colleagues from a different specialty of, of uh, you know the health sciences uh, thinking in sort of similar ways about the you know the future and 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 how to assess the novel upcoming um, treatment options possibilities and uh, also the the, you know the benefits that we've gotten from from many of the things that we've been practicing so um thanks so much drew it was it was really a pleasure talking to you and i hope we can continue this conversation in the future no i mean for sure it's been a treat getting to know you over the past uh, year and and uh speaking with you and having you really uh it's always influence how i think about the microbiome just in our few conversations so it's a treat i look forward to more of them everybody who's listening thank you for the conversation. I hope mostly you hear my encouragement that your mental health is something you have a lot of control over. And no matter where you are in your mental health journey, that there should be hope for you. Uh, there's a lot of treatments. There's a lot of evolution that happens. I've seen just thousands of people completely transform their mental health. So um, I hope this leaves you with some ideas, a little bit about what to eat, but also just with the notion that there's a really active conversation going on and talking about your mental health is the first uh, first step. So, Emran, I'll, I'll I'll see you down the road, man. Take care. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye.